0: Professor Neil Frood is a chartered clinical psychologist and a fellow of the British Psychological Society. His work in clinical practice involves working with patients diagnosed with a variety of mental health problems.
1: Obviously one of the things that happens if somebody receives a diagnosis is that that label is something which can have all sorts of implications. It has, for example, a social implication, generally speaking, to be given a label, which is often a lifetime label of something like schizophrenia, is very stigmatising. There are other diagnoses, however, where people sometimes, well, what happens is that it sheds a different light. People often actually are quite relieved that rather than just having an odd set of behaviors, that now they have got something which is a diagnosis. An example of that would be the many people who've suffered for decades with Tourette's syndrome, thinking that they were odd themselves, thinking that their behavior was strange. Range, not having any explanation for it, any label for it, thinking they were unique, often being teased, often you know suffering a great deal from this. Who then discover, after all, that they are one of many people who have a condition which is fairly well understood, which is Tourette syndrome. Another example, indeed, would be dyslexia, where generations have felt that they're stupid, they can't read. They Can't even read and write, they're illiterate and so on. And now the label of dyslexia is one which gives us a different understanding of people, where we understand that people can be very bright indeed, but they have a particular and very specific disability, which is that of dyslexia or dysgraphia if they can't draw or dyscalculia if they can't add up and so on. So there's a whole generation of those, but the notion is that these are specific disabilities and that they certainly don't add up to what the alternative label, which is a playground label, rather than a DSM label, which is stupid or thick or whatever it is. It's a very different view if you then actually apply dyslexia, dysgraphia and so on.
0: The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, provides standard criteria and a common language for the classification of mental disorders. The 5th edition is due for publication in 2013. Another classification system, International Statistical Classification of Disease and Related Health Problems, or ICD, allows every health condition to be assigned to a unique category. The 10th edition was published in 1992.
1: The actual process of diagnosis has changed somewhat over the years in that what the DSM system and ICD have also done is to try and become more reliable. The notion being that if you're reliable, you've got a half chance of being valid as well. And the increase in reliability has really been by making criteria more sort of measurable, so that, for example, rather than, say, has trouble sleeping, it would be has had trouble sleeping for at least three months, at least three days out of the seven each week. On average, it would be that. And the notion is that that increases reliability because what you mean and I mean by has trouble sleeping might be different. Whereas if we count it up in terms of number of nights, then we're presumably, with the same evidence, we would come to the same conclusion. So reliability is increased. I mean, some have always been very reliable. If you've got, for example, a hand washing OCD, It doesn't really take a lot of hard evidence or reliability studies or anything like that. You're going to get agreement between people... But there are some labels like schizoaffective disorder, which overlap with affective disorder, but also with schizophrenic disorder. And it's there you get all sorts of blurred lines, furry lines, and there are difficulties there. So what DSM and so on has tried to do is to raise the reliability. And indeed they've done that because you can measure these things. You can measure basically how much agreement is there between clinicians in how they diagnose 100 random cases, the same people. We can show that over the years, with each version of DSM, reliability has increased. And that's not surprising, because that's what gives rise to a new generation of DSM. That's what they're trying to do all the time, is to make the system better, and one element of better is that it's more reliable.
0: One problem that clinicians face when making a diagnosis is personal bias.
1: There are all sorts of personal biases, what experiential differences, what you're used to, your own theories, and so on, which could influence the diagnosis that you give. So, for example, if we were to take a judgment like has difficulty sleeping, well, it depends where you're coming from. If you yourself have no difficulty sleeping, then anybody with any difficulty, you might be ticked that box. Whereas if you were somebody who yourself had great difficulty, you may maybe would think that was the norm. And so somebody who says, well, I have trouble sleeping, you would sort of shrug and say, don't we all, as it were? And you might not tick that box. It's been suggested that there may be biases that reflect stereotypes, stereotypes of women versus men, for example, or of working-class people versus middle-class people and so on. That, In other words, what you're doing is not simply judging the person, but you're judging the person relative to some stereotype that you have. And, of course, different people will have different stereotypes, and it's clearly not a fair or neutral process to let those stereotypes influence your so-called diagnostic process.
0: In diagnosing any medical condition, it's important to distinguish between signs and symptoms.
1: We make a distinction between signs and symptoms, and generally speaking, symptoms are what can be shown or what people report, and signs are what you see firsthand. For example, somebody might be looking as if they're very tired, and you say, how are you feeling? So I'm feeling fine. Now, they're reporting that they're feeling fine, whereas actually it looks to you as if they're not fine at all or as if they're sleepy and so on. So we've got to take into account really all the evidence that we have in terms of doing tests, but generally speaking, what we mostly do, certainly with people who are not thought to have neurological problems, is we talk to people and we talk through their clinical history and we ask them how they're feeling, and generally speaking we take at face value what they say and we do cover biological aspects in terms of you know how are you sleeping these days what's your appetite like have you lost weight lately things like that we look at psychological aspects which is how are you feeling how are you thinking and we look at social aspects how are you getting on at work how are you getting on in your relationships and so on and so forth so we build up very much a biopsychosocial picture. And where we see issues, problems, as it were, then we would obviously drill down further. So if somebody says, for example, that they're really having trouble with their eating and so on, then we would go into more detail about that. And what we're trying to do, of course, is to get as much evidence as we can, which will allow us to build up a formulation And a formulation is an individual picture. It's beyond a diagnosis. A diagnosis ends with a label, in a sense, or a DSM number. Whereas what we are doing in a formulation is actually trying to come up with an individual case picture. It's a theory. It's a hypothesis. But it's about what might be important causal factors in the person's condition, what their present condition is, what the effects of various aspects of their life have been, various symptoms, and also with a prognosis about what's likely to occur following this. Uh, is it something that's likely to spontaneously revert to a sort of normal picture or is it something that's likely to become more serious? And associated with that, of course, all the time would be a risk assessment. Is this person a risk to themselves mostly, but also you know, maybe they could be a risk to other people as well? So that's another sort of framework that we would be bearing in mind. But it very much is drawing upon that bio-psychosocial because that really is the only way where you get a sense of completion. And, of course, it's a holistic picture as well because each one of those elements feeds around to the others, you know, that we've got all sorts of circles going on there, sometimes vicious circles that make things worse and worse and worse, other times virtuous circles and so on. Obviously there are cases in which we want very specialist knowledge. An example would be that we really want to have a brain scan on somebody and so we would arrange that a specialist in that technological approach takes our patient that we're involved with in a holistic way, and they supply really just one piece of information. And, of course, we can just look at the biological and the medical sort of aspects of this. What a psychologist would do, at the very least, would be to think what the impact of that damage or disability is likely to be. Typically, we are concerned very much with what a condition stops somebody being able to do. That is the disability that it leads to and also the distress that it's causing. So, whereas you can do a biomedical analysis and stop there without just ignoring, as it were, the person's social condition and so on, that really tends not to be very fruitful. And I don't think many people would want to do that. Let me tell you that when I was Training, which was a long time ago, there was one particular finding from the local hospital where I was working, a piece of research there, which absolutely amazed me at the time. It amazes me less now. Let me tell you what it was. It was at the Institute of Psychiatry in London where there was a very famous neurosurgeon. And this neurosurgeon carried out brain surgery at a rate of knots, as it were, and had many, many patients and did lots of research and looked to see at one stage in one study what predicted good recovery from the brain surgery. And as you can imagine, it was partly the size of the tumour that had been removed, let us say. Partly it was to do with the age of the person. So it was these sorts of biological, understandable, predictable variables. And then something that came out as highly, highly significant, remember this is in recovery from brain surgery, was whether the patient was married or not. And that at that time, you know, I thought, that's really interesting. How can something, like whether you walked up the aisle and signed a piece of paper, how can that possibly affect your recovery from brain surgery? It really was crossing that barrier. Now, today, that I'm a born-again biopsychosocial person, I have no difficulty in understanding that. But it stood out to me, and we're going 40 years ago now, it really struck me as very, very odd... And I always think these correlations where you get something like that, something which is very social, affecting something which is very biological, like where you get people telling stories of trauma, and that telling of a story actually affects the level of their immune functioning and their immune system. And I just think that's it's almost like magic, but that's where the biopsychosocial... And what it indicates, and this is the whole fascination of the area, is how everything is tied to everything. It is holistic. It's like the old thigh bone connected to the knee bone. And it's really every aspect of the system is connected to everything else.
0: Even when taking this biopsychosocial approach... Diagnosis is not always straightforward.
1: Clearly there are some cases some people would come in and they would say something like I'm finding that I'm now having to wash my hands 20 times a day and I check on things and so on. And I think in cases like that we would have little difficulty in diagnosing in this case OCD. In other cases, people come in and we're not absolutely sure. For example, a lot of people go to their GP with aches and pains. And it actually turns out after lots of investigations and so on that these people are depressed and that the physical signs and symptoms here are actually signs and symptoms of a predominantly psychological situation. Now sometimes people come in and we're not sure whether maybe it's this or maybe it's that and what we're always looking for is the sort of acid test. We're looking for the litmus test as to whether somebody let's say has got some physical ailment which responsible for the aches and pains, or whether it's depression. And so we would have a test, ideally, that would separate out one from the other. It might be that someone comes along and they have got symptoms which are rather extreme distortions, delusions, hallucinations, and there the issue might well be whether they have got bipolar disorder. I mean, we normally think of that as the old manic depressive disorder with a lot of depression and then in between bouts of depression there are phases of mania where, you know, they lose inhibitions and behave in antisocial perhaps ways and schizophrenia which comes again in lots of different forms but often there is a problem about which label or which diagnosis to apply and that obviously is again important in terms of our understanding in terms of treatment, in terms of care planning because we need to know, we want to know what the likely outcome is going to be and so we would apply basically if you look at the criteria in DSM for bipolar and for the various types of schizophrenia then you will find that there are tremendous overlaps but also there are these differential characteristics and it's those that you would use then to apply to make a diagnosis. Let me say anyway that all diagnoses really should be considered to be provisional so that you do sometimes get clinicians who are said to be wedded to their diagnosis. That means that once they've decided that somebody is bipolar, there's nothing on earth that's going to persuade them otherwise, whereas there are people who are much more flexible and will take in new evidence and say, I guess I was wrong, it looked like bipolar, but now it seems to me the most appropriate diagnosis here would be one of, let's say, paranoid schizophrenia.
0: Another problem clinicians face when trying to make an appropriate diagnosis is comorbidity.
1: Sometimes people have two or even more conditions at the same time. They're obviously going to interact and sometimes it's rather difficult to... Disentangle to find out whether, for example, there is both a depression, let's say, and there is anorexia, or whether maybe what's happened is that this, uh, let's say, this young woman has developed anorexia. That has had such an impact on her life and on her relationships that she's now, as a consequence of that, become depressed. Now, that would be a very sort of common picture, And the question now would be, do we consider that to be two conditions, depression and anorexia, or do we consider it to be anorexia with a spin-off effect, as it were, down the line, which is depression? Certainly it would be the case that almost anybody with a disabling, distressing condition is likely to be anxious or depressed as a result of that. But in some cases there will be people who have a, as it were, genuine standalone depression and also anorexia. And again, the way in which we treat that person might be different, I guess, in those two cases. Obviously, when we have the burgeoning of the number of disorders which has happened with the DSM through the various versions of it, it's now dsm four, and with each version, it's really the number of disease entities, as it were, has increased. So to an extent, because you've got that increased number of recognisable disorders, you would imagine that you're going to get greater comorbidity because somebody who's depressed, if you scan for all the other possibilities, then there's a, in a sense, almost a high chance that they're going to have at least one of the other conditions. To some extent, that's offset by the fact that DSM, for example, often will say that if you've got somebody with anorexia who is depressed, then don't count that as standalone depression as well as anorexia, take into account that this is actually better seen as a symptom of anorexia rather than as a standalone depressive illness. Because the main things, depression and anxiety, are both symptoms, but they're also types of disorder. And in some cases, they're best regarded as symptoms. In other cases, they're best regarded as the disorder itself.
0: By taking a holistic biopsychosocial approach to diagnosis, treatment can be tailored specifically to the individual.
1: Take, for example, a case of somebody who I've been seeing for some time. We'll call him John. John has OCD and he's a checker. He checks. He probably takes him about an extra hour each evening before he goes to bed, checking you know, the windows and the taps and the electric plugs and everything. His checking depends entirely on how he's doing at work, whether he's stressed or not. And It's really been interesting that in terms of my treatment, there's a sort of standard treatments for OCD, which are sort of cognitive behavioural treatments, and I've been using those, and he's taken to them, and he's done his homework and so on, and we'll be getting somewhere. His checking will be going down. And then what will happen is that there'll be a stressful event at work. And this has gone on for so long that we now have a metaphor, which is it's like the tide comes in and washes away the sandcastles that we've been building. So we're doing good CBT work. We're building up and so on we're getting success and then something at work will happen and it completely puts him back to as bad as he ever was before so we've got to take into account both you know i'm sure there is a biological aspect to his ocd as there is to many if not all cases of ocd so i'm sure that there is a chemistry issue there why he's vulnerable there might be a genetic vulnerability etc so on so we're not ignoring that but his out look on things is very important what he perceives as stress and so on and his relationships with the work environment and particularly with his line manager so his social relationships are absolutely vital in determining his clinical picture and in fact what's happening what happened for ages was that all of my and his therapeutic efforts were being completely swamped by social kickbacks, as it were. And in the end, my intervention and the one that worked was actually to write letters to his employers to suggest that certain types of work, which he found very stressful, were in a sense almost poisonous to him in the way in which if you had an allergy to asbestos, aluminium, whatever it is, that you should be allowed not to work in those environments. And that actually showed a major improvement. So what that did was to clear the deck so that we could then do the CBT and the sandcastles as it were did not get blown down from the open university for more information go to www.open.ac.uk/use